You ever tell a joke or a story, and then when you kind of got to the climax of the story or the punchline of the joke, um, the people you were talking to just kind of looked at you like, what? Well, that's happened to me a lot of times. And then, of course, that's when you say, well, uh, I guess you should have been there. And so that's kind of how I feel about the passage that we're going to be dealing with today is that in order for you to get a better impact of the exchange that Jesus had with his disciples, you're going to appreciate it more if you have a little bit of background. I hope it's interesting to you. It's extremely interesting to me. It actually sort of ties in together with a series that I gave uh, several months ago on spiritual warfare. So I don't know uh, how much of that you can remember, but uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that, but I'm going to mention some things, and uh, maybe you can tie that back to uh, some of the things I said in that series. So open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to begin at verse 13 and go through verse 20. The Bible tells us that uh, they took off for Caesarea Philippi. Well, that town is located at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is going to have a lot to do with what Jesus said. If we understand some things about Mount Hermon, we understand the background, we understand the culture, we understand uh, the whole socio-historical climate of what was going on around Mount Hermon. It's going to make what Jesus said extremely powerful. Here's, Here's a map. I don't know how well you can see that, but... Mount Hermon is actually uh, sort of a series of mountains. It's it's like a a, a mini mountain range at the end of a larger mountain range. And it actually has three peaks. It covers about 20 miles long. And um, it's the highest, one of its peaks is the highest elevation in the whole area. The highest elevation in Israel. It's about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. It's approximately uh, 50 miles west of Damascus. It is snow-covered pretty much year-round. It's the only place in Israel that you can go snow skiing. So it's a pretty uh, popular uh, winter vacation spot. At the top, sort of at the the, the peak there, it divides Syria and Lebanon. So you've got a border, basically. And then 10% of this area is actually occupied by Israel. And so that in itself makes it a a peculiarly interesting place. Uh, We don't have time to go into a lot of that kind of thing. But what I do have time to go into a little bit is that the ancients, the Mesopotamians, 
And then, of course, the Greeks and, and all of these ancient civilizations were paganistic. And so they believed in a plurality of gods. Essentially, regardless of which one you look at, there were three primary gods. There was the god of the land, the god of the sea, and the realm of the dead. In Greek mythology, of course, that would be Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. That ought to get your attention that there was a Greek god named Hades, and he ruled the realm of the dead. Well, Jesus actually uses this word, Hades, this Greek word, in some of this dialogue, and we're going to look at that shortly. So, here is an aerial view that gives you some idea. That's Mount Hermon in the background. And you can see the town where Jesus took his disciples is at the foot of Mount Hermon. And there located in that place was a massive cliff. It was over 100 feet high, and uh, it was especially in that area where there were many shrines and temples. In fact, all over Mount Hermon, archaeologists have found the remains of temples and shrines to, to various pagan gods. But here at Caesarea Philippi, and, and you can look at the name and realize, well, that's named after Caesar, obviously, and uh, one reason it was named after Caesar is because Philip, one of Herod the great sons, uh, he was trying to impress the Romans. And uh, so he named that city after himself and after Caesar. And so it was a city that was well known for all of these temples and shrines to all of these gods and goddesses. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, a lot of times you will read about high places, and people would go to high places, high elevation places, and there they would build an altar, or they would build a, a temple, a shrine, some place to worship. And the reason they would go to these high places is because in their minds, these high places put them closer to the gods. And so when the gods would interact with them, the gods would come down to the high places. And so since Mount Hermon was the highest elevation around, you can imagine then why that the people who worshipped all of these gods and goddesses, they would go to Mount Hermon and there they would build a temple or a shrine or whatever to their god or goddess. Now I already mentioned about the three main gods, right? Well, that was Greek mythology, but in some of the other ancient civilizations, you found pretty much the exact same thing. Uh, the god El, and that might strike a chord with you because uh, the true God of heaven in the Old Testament is referred to as El. But anyway, the Mesopotamian god, the, 
the, the highest, the most powerful, the greatest God of all was El. And El was said to live on Mount Hermon. So the God of the whole Mesopotamian culture and civilization lived there. Now to the Greeks and to others, uh, there was at this time Pan, P-A-N, Pan. Pan represented a pantheon, which simply means a conglomerate of the gods and goddesses. And so Pan, if you want to look him up, strangely enough, was half man and half goat. He had horns coming. I started to give you some pictures, some illustrations, but the more I looked at, the more I was just sort of disgusted, and I did not want to do that. If you want to do that, that's fine, but it's just a place I don't particularly want to, to go. So anyway, in worship to Pan, at this place, at this cliff, they would often throw goats as sacrifices to Pan off the cliff, or they would throw them into a bottomless pit. You see, do you see that cave there in this picture? Everybody see that? There's a, a bunch of tourists standing around that cave. It probably did not look like this in the first century because there have been a number of earthquakes and various things that have uh, changed uh, the whole appearance of all of this. But in the first century, there was a large cave there, and all of the ancients referred to it as a bottomless pit. Well, there was water in there. And they tried, but they failed to plumb the depths to see how deep the water was, and they never could. And so they just assumed that it was a bottomless pit that led to Hades. And this was where, this was where the gate of Hades existed. Now the interesting thing about all of this area was that Mount Hermon was the place where they believed that 200 watchers came. Now this is where I refer you back to my sermon series a while back. You can read in the Bible about watchers in the book of Daniel. But a watcher was evidently a very high-level angel. And there were certain angels that God put in charge to watch over humanity. And these watchers were the ones that are referred to in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God who went to the daughters of men and had relations with them and their children were giants. Do you remember all of that? I hope you do. But anyway, these watchers were angels that fell. And so the angels that fell, the watchers who came to dwell among men and to find themselves human women that they thought were so beautiful and that they adored and wanted to be with, they came down from the heavens at Mount Hermon. This is where the watchers lived. Now, 
There's so much here that we could go into, but I'm just going to wrap this part of it up and move on. And I hope I'm, I'm not uh, confusing you too much. But often directly associated with pagan gods and goddesses, because this was an agrarian society, fertility was a big deal. The fertility of the land, the crops, they were very dependent on the crops, the gardens, the fields, everything that they grew. And so whenever there was a time of drought or whenever there was a, uh, a time of, of maybe terrible cold or, or, or whatever, in other words, whenever the crops weren't good, they understood that they had failed to appease the gods. And so they had done something wrong, and so they needed to get right with the gods. And so they would sacrifice these goats. They would do all kinds of things. They would do unimaginable things that I'm not even going to talk about. But they did all of this to excite the gods so that the gods would come and it was this bottomless pit that they viewed this was the gateway. This is where the, the gods and goddesses would go into the realm of the dead, and then they would come back through the gates of hell. And so, now try to imagine, here's another, uh, an up-close picture of the area, and you see those, those dugout places in the wall and in in the cliff. Well, there were tons of those, and that's where you would find shrines and statues and everything to these gods and goddesses. And here's a bunch of verses that tie all of this together, just so you know that I'm not making this up. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through all of this. But I want you to look at some of the things in bold. You've got Mount Hermon there, and it is connected with Bashan. And Og in Bashan, Og was the king of Bashan. And remember, Og was a giant. He's one of these giants. Judges 3, verse 3, uh, Mount Hermon is called in that place Mount Baal Hermon. Remember, I said that's, that's where he lived, Mount Hermon. And so sometimes the name of the god Baal is associated with Hermon. Here's another passage in Joshua that connects them, and uh, another one uh, in Joshua. Uh, there's a lot there. It's kind of interesting. Let's see. I hit the wrong button. This is the area where the tribe of Dan settled. Do you remember when the children of Israel came into the promised land and the land was divided, and they all went to certain parts of the promised land. Well, the Danites settled here. They built a city. Remember the city of Dan? Remember when the ten northern tribes separated from the southern tribes? You remember that in your Old Testament history? Remember the northern tribes did not want to go to Jerusalem to worship, so they set up golden calves in Dan and Bethel. Well, Dan, that's where we're talking about here. 
We're talking about the foot of Mount Hermon where the, the Israelites built a golden calf and worshiped there rather than go to Jerusalem. You also might remember that um, Jacob's prophecy to his sons, remember before Jacob died in Egypt and he gave this long prophecy, I think it's in Genesis 49, he connects Dan, his son, to a serpent. You might also remember that in Moses' prophecy, he prophesies that Dan would be a lion's whelp or offspring who would inhabit Bashan, which is the Mount Hermon area. And some Bible scholars believe this is why in the list of the tribes of Israel in, Dan, in Revelation chapter 7, it's stupefied a lot of people that Dan is not mentioned there for some reason. Dan got left out. And this may be the reason why. So anyway, let's get to the conversation Jesus had with the disciples. So here you are. Think about this. Most people believe Jesus' disciples were fairly young men. That's probably pretty likely. Jesus, you know, is going to be in his early 30s here. And so, remember, it's 150 miles, basically, from Jerusalem uh, to here. But if you travel up to the area where Jesus spent a lot of time in his ministry around the Sea of Galilee... It's not nearly as far. So Jesus has spent a lot of time in the north, in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. And so it's not too much farther on up to Hermon, maybe 30 miles or so. So anyway, they head that direction to Caesarea Philippi. Now think about this. All of these things that I've said to confuse you, it was not, they were not confusing to the people who lived there. They knew what Mount Hermon represented. They knew the people who lived all up around Mount Hermon. They knew what that city with its name, bearing Caesar's name, and Herod Philip's name, they knew what that city represented. They knew how it had been rebuilt and, and restored, and what all of that stood for. Remember, they're under Roman occupation and had been for some time. Remember that, as we talked about, this is where the watchers came down. This is where the gate of Hades is. This, in other words, is where the rabbis forbade the Jews to go. You, if you're a Jew, you don't go there, period. But yet Jesus is going there. In a manner of speaking, Jesus is taking the 12 disciples into the devil's backyard. That's about as plain as I can get. They knew this. This is a place to be avoided. This is a place that they were probably afraid of. 
This is a place that they're, as they're making this trip and realizing where they're going, they're probably talking among themselves as they often did. What is he doing? Where are we going? Why is he taking us here? And the closer they got, it's very likely the more fearful they got because they didn't understand this. They didn't understand what's going on here. And yet Jesus keeps right on until he gets to the cave itself. The gate of Hades, and then he asked Peter this question. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, so they gave some of the, the answers. Well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, one of the prophets. You know, they're throwing these things out. That was a topic of conversation in their day, believe you me. They had been with Jesus for some time already. They've traveled all around Judea, and they have seen the miracles. They've heard his teaching. Remember, there were great crowds who followed Jesus. Remember some of the statements that came from the crowds. Nobody ever taught like this guy does. And they had seen miracles that they had never seen before. They'd never seen anybody do the things that Jesus had done. Who is this man? And so finally Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter stepped out like he often did. In some cases, almost seemed to be the spokesman of the group. A lot of times he said things that we're like, oh, Peter. But not this time. This time he got it right. This time he hit the nail on the head. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. It's the exact same word as Messiah, and the English equivalent would be anointed. And so they understood what that word meant. It's kind of hard for us to get our head around what a first century Jew's thoughts might have been about a Messiah. But one thing's for sure, as we read carefully through the Gospels, we do come to realize that there was an expectation they were expecting in their day a Messiah. Well, a Messiah to, to them might not have been exactly what you or I think about a Messiah, but there are some similarities and correlations that we might miss, but I think are very real, just like we sang today about a deliverer. Well, that's... That's what they were thinking. They wanted a deliverer because they were in bondage to the Romans. They didn't like it. It affected their daily life in many, many ways. They felt that they were cheated and taken advantage of because of the high taxes. They didn't have some freedoms that they used to have. And remember, they were a people who were very proud. 
probably not unlike many Americans are today. They're patriotic. They're proud of their country. They're proud to be an American, all this kind of thing. Well, back then, Jews, they were very proud to be a Jew. They had an illustrious history. There was a time where they were the most powerful nation known in the world under King David and King Solomon. And so they had this great history, and above all of that, besides that, they were a people of the covenant. They were a people chosen by God. They were the people of God, a light to the world. And they knew all these things, and they believed all these things about themselves, but when they saw the political condition of their country, and they saw the way that they had to live, they resented it. It infuriated them. In fact, there were, there were different sects or different groups, zealots, for example, who would literally fight against the Romans behind the scenes, undercover, that sort of thing. And so the people are longing for deliverance. And then there are things going on that we, I, we don't understand, I don't think. I certainly don't. There were astrologers from the east who in watching the constellations and watching the stars, somehow or another, there were things that they had been taught, things that they knew to look at the stars, and when they saw a certain thing happen in the stars, that was a clear signal to them that a new king had been born. And so they traveled evidently a long way with very expensive gifts to pay homage to this king. Well, the shepherds, remember, when it was first revealed to them that a king was born, that this child was born. They ran to see him, but if you read the text carefully, it says they told everybody. They told everybody what they had seen in the field. They told everybody what they had heard. They told everybody about this baby. So word is spreading. You remember eight days later, they take him to the temple. Remember Anna, the prophetess, who spent all day, every day, there at the temple. She says some beautiful things about Jesus. And then, if you look carefully, the text says she was telling everybody about the child. Words getting around. Remember when John the Baptist first came on the scene before all of this? The people were asking, could this be the Messiah? There are lots of clues there. So the people were expecting Messiah. And here comes Jesus, and he's not what they expected. Many of them expected another David. After all, you know, the prophets seemed to make a big deal that it would be a direct ancestor of David who would be the king, and his kingdom would be set up, and his kingdom would destroy all other kingdoms and all that kind of thing. And so, yeah, yeah. I can buy into that. And a lot of Jews had bought into that. And that's what they wanted. They wanted a powerful warrior king to come down there, draw their nation together, pull everybody together, 
and defeat the Romans and get their freedom back. So all these kinds of things are going on socially and politically. And now Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say I am? And when Peter says, you are the Christ. Peter got it. Peter understood who he really was. And if you think about it, when he says the son of the living God, he had to have understood in that moment, standing at the bottom of that cliff, looking at all those statues, all those shrines, all those things that pointed to these pagan gods and goddesses, he knew those are not living gods. They're not. You can push the statue over and its neck fall off. They're not living gods. They're not gods at all in the sense that Jesus is God. Somehow they understood the incarnation. Somehow they understood the person that was standing before them. There were many clues, many reasons. John, at the end of his gospel, says, you know, if, if we had written everything down that Jesus did, the world couldn't hold all the books. And then later he said, but you know, the things that we wrote, these things are written that you might believe, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so, he is, the Scriptures say, the only begotten Son of God. In other words, he is unique. He is different. He is unlike any other. There are others who are called sons of God. We talked about how the, the, the angels, the, the, the watchers, they were called sons of God in the Old Testament. But nobody was called son of God like Jesus was. He's the only who is God in a human body. And right there at the bottom of that cliff, Peter makes this confession, a confession that sets people apart from everybody else in the world, those who believe Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke about, Jesus is the high priest, Jesus is our all in all. He is our everything. And everybody else, everything else that is referred to or called God or goddess, they're nothing compared to him. But now, he continues, you're Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Some translations say the gates of hell. But if you look 
at the original text, the word is not Gehenna hell. It's not the place of eternal torment. That's not what it is. That's not where he's talking about. Hades is the realm of the dead. They're not necessarily in, everybody there's not necessarily in eternal torment. The realm of the dead, that's where the souls of the dead go. Now, there's a lot of things from 2 Peter and Jude and, and all that, that are tied into all of this. And like we said, this was called the gate of hell, Hades, the realm of the dead, and all of that. What did Jesus mean when he said, you're Peter and on this rock I'll build my church? Well, obviously, some people feel like that means that Peter was the head of the church, and he is the first in the papacy. Well, I can see how people could understand that. But is that what Jesus meant? Was Jesus saying there will be a direct line of men who will always hold the place of being the head of the church. Well, the thing that would confuse that is that if you turn the page in chapter 18, verse 18, Jesus basically says the same thing to all the disciples there. When he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You see, as, as the statement continues, that's why a lot of people think that he was talking just to Peter and he's putting Peter in a higher place of authority and position than anybody else. See that? We'll come back to that in, in, in a moment. So, on this rock I will build my church. On this rock. What did he mean by that? You know, there's a, a lot of people talk about the, the, the language here, the difference in, in, in the wording, the nuances of the wording, because the word uh, Cephas, Peter, means stone or rock. And, and then, you know, on this rock I will build my church. Well, I think it helps us to understand what he's talking about. He's not necessarily talking about Peter exclusively, I think he has some reference to that massive cliff that they're at the bottom of with all of these statues and all of these things that would lead people and remind people of paganism. And think about it, on this rock, what if he's speaking very literally? And what if he means on this rock? All this stuff is at the bottom of it, Here's the gates of hell. Here's all of these statues and all of these things embedded in the rock and everything. On top of it, over all of these things, superior, higher, greater than all of this that you're seeing. That's going to be my church. And that reminds you of things like in Daniel's vision. It reminds you of a lot of things that we read in Scripture, that God's kingdom is greater, it is higher, it surpasses all other kingdoms. And so I think that's what Jesus has in mind here. And when he says the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overcome it, a lot of, there, there are at least three views, and, and I've actually come to the the conclusion that I, I believe all three of them likely were in the mind of Jesus when he said this. What do gates represent in a city? 
Well, first of all, to a lot of the uh, ancient cities, the gates represented a place of government. It's where the, the judge would come. That's where the court would be. That's where contracts were made. That's where business took place. That's where trade took place. The gates represented economy, a way of life. But the gates also represented protection. You see, when the enemy would come, the gates would fling open, the people would run in, the gates would be shut, and they'd be protected from the enemy. But the gates also would be used to let the army out. The gates would fling open, and the soldiers would leave the city to go fight. So were these gates representing offensive or defensive? Well, think about this. When Jesus goes to where he goes, when he shows them everything that they're seeing, all these things we've talked about, these spiritual forces of evil, we're talking demons from hell, folks. We're talking principalities and powers and the dark forces of this present world. That's what we're dealing with here. Yeah, there are no real gods and goddesses, but Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians that what we're actually dealing with are spiritual forces, Satan and his minions, the demons of Satan, the watchers that have gone wrong and bad, all these things. And Jesus is right there, right there. And he says, I'm going to build my church on this rock, right here, where all of this is, in the devil's backyard. I'm going to build my church, and nothing is going to stop it. My death is not going to stop it. They're going to kill me. That's not going to stop me from building my church. In a sense, Jesus may have been intimating, I'm going myself personally through the gates of Hades. I'm going to the realm of the dead. That's not going to stop me because I'm going to come right back out. I'm coming right out of death. Maybe that's what he had in mind. It fits. And there are a lot of passages in Scripture about the resurrection that support that. But maybe he's saying, guys, you see all of this? We're going to have it hard. They're going to come after us like you cannot imagine. In fact, there are many passages we could produce where Jesus told his disciples, you're going to be persecuted. They're going to arrest you. They're going to punish you. They, in some cases, they're going to kill you. Just like they're going to kill me, they're going to kill you. This is not going to be easy. Because the forces of Satan are going to fight against truth, against God, against purity and holiness. Satan does not want this to happen, and he's going to fight it with everything in him. But he's not going to win. Maybe that's what he's saying. 
But I like to think that Jesus is saying, okay, guys, look around. Here we are. Here's the gates of Hades. Here's all of this. Everything, the world, everything that evil and sin and crime and death, killing, rape, murder, war, lying, cheating, stealing, you name it. You name it. Here it is, right here, represented by all of this. And they better get ready. They better bolt the doors of their gates because I'm storming in and they're not going to stop us. And everywhere the gospel is preached, everywhere a soul is saved, Jesus is storming the gates of Hades. Every time you do good, every time you bless someone, every time you stand up for truth and right, you are helping storm the gates of Hades. It's time the church stopped being quiet. It's time that we stopped being afraid of the world that we live in. Don't be intimidated by Satan. Don't let Satan and all the evil around us stop us from the mission that God has called us to do. We have forgotten what the church exists for. We are here to storm the gates of hell. We are here to stand up for what is right. We're here to call out sin. We're here to call people to repentance. And all the beautiful things that Martin and Sharon have shared with us this morning about what God is doing in this world is just evidence. Wherever you find evil and sin and wickedness and wherever you think people have totally rejected God, God's not there. Oh, yes, he is. And the gospel is still being preached and people are still walking with Christ and people are still showing the world who Jesus is. And we are so blessed But don't let the Americanization of the church keep us from doing what we're supposed to do and being what we're supposed to be. We get so wrapped up in the things of this world around us that we are distracted and we get so used to the sin that's all around us that we become calloused. We need to jerk the scab off. We need to bleed a little bit. We need to feel the pain. We need to see it for what it really is. And we need to take the healing power of Jesus to a messed up, sick, perverted world. Folks, our country, this is not the country I grew up in. And I'm not saying everything was great and wonderful in the world I grew up in, but I'm telling you this. There's something bad, bad wrong 
when the more weird, the more perverted, the more twisted that something is, it's exalted and honored. And that's what's happening in our country. Stand up, speak out, and fight for all your worth against Satan and his evil forces. Jesus promised us, he promised us, the gates of Hades are not going to stop us.